Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Criterion Reflection. This is 114 that we've done, and uh, we are going to be continuing our exploration of films that are Criterion-affiliated from the year 1972. Uh, these are a couple of TV movies. I guess it's just one TV movie that was released in two separate episodes, now combined under one title. It's called Blaise Pascal by the noted Italian director Roberto Rossellini, one of the uh, so-called history films that he made at the end of his career after he had sort of uh, wearied himself, I suppose, or at least uh, come to the end of his um, interest in commercial uh, conventional cinema. Uh, he took his talents and put them in a new direction. I think uh, there was a documentary he did about India in the late 1950s. And then uh, I think it was the taking of power of Louis XIV that became kind of his um, real departure uh, in this new direction. And so uh, these are films I've lived with for a while. I've done uh, writing on them all, all the way back to 2012, so 10 years ago. I wrote a review of this particular film for Criterion Cast, and I was doing my series, A Journey Through the Eclipse series. And that's how these films are uh, preserved on one format, and they're also available on the Criterion channel. So this is familiar territory for me. It's a unique style of movie making, and here to talk about with me is uh, Richard Doyle. Richard, welcome back. Hey, good to be back so soon. <laughs> well, I'm I'm on a little bit of a clip right now. Um, one of the things I've wanted to do this new year is to try to keep the pace going. So uh, as you may have noticed, I've been releasing some shorter episodes, trying to get the, you know, get the conversation in within that one hour time frame. And sometimes there's movies that we have a lot of guests. There's, they're big films and you definitely going up to a couple hours or even more sometimes but uh, you know we'll see where the conversation goes today uh but i appreciate you joining me richard you're becoming a little bit of a sidekick it seems these yeah and uh I, you know again super appreciate that because i would much rather have a conversation about it than just go on a monologue here so thank you for picking up the torch and and uh, getting into it with me so let me just ask you this um have you watched many of these Rossellini history films? I kind of did a brief intro, but uh, tell me your experience with them. No, this is the first one I've seen. Okay, um, yeah. I always was very fond of the Eclipse series, largely, you know, it's great to see ones like early, you know, Bergman and Kurosawa yeah. films, mm -hmm. but I was really tickled with these ones that released stuff that I didn't think would ever see release. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So like the Norman Mailer films and the Robert Downey films <laughs> oh, yeah. and things like that. For sure. Love those. Yeah. So I didn't, uh, I didn't know these films existed until the Eclipse set mm -hmm. came out and I was, I have always been interested in them. Um, but I have not watched one until right now. Okay. Um, I do have familiarity with the subject matter of this one. So that was one of the reasons I decided to dip myself dip, yeah. dip in with this one. Well, we will definitely get into the uh, life and times of Blaise Pascal, a great French uh, mathematician, uh, philosopher, uh, writer. I mean, he has a pretty impressive resume of innovative things that he did. And we'll, we'll get into that because that's what the film is largely constructed around is kind of the notable moments and movements of his life uh but let's start by talking about rossellini um i'm sure you've seen some of rossellini's you know big films you know the war trilogy his collaborative work with ingrid bergman in the 1950s uh just tell me a little bit about your background with uh, roberto rossellini i i don't think i've seen enough because i really i really like rossellini but i've only seen 
two of the war trilogy and one of the Bergman films. Okay. Um, yeah. I have like the, the war trilogy set and I mm-hmm. have the Bergman set, but I tend to jump all over the place. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Watched, I've watched Paisan out of the Blu-ray set mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. and I've seen open city years ago on, uh, it would have been my introduction to him. I saw sure. it on uh, VHS and I've watched Europe 51. Okay. Both of which I absolutely love. Um, yeah. He's a remarkably um, a skilled filmmaker and really kind of follows his own path. You know, uh, he, there's not really anybody that I can think of that's quite like him. Obviously, uh, one of the you know founders of Italian neorealism, the War Trilogy in particular, uh, really you know kicked that movement off and and um, got you know basically born of necessity uh, filming in the still smoldering rubble of post-war Italy and and ultimately up to Berlin and Germany year zero uh, he was telling stories about you know the impact of the war on ordinary people uh, there were moments of drama and all of that but it was very different than you know your war movies uh, made around that same time on, on all sides of the conflict whether they were British Hollywood, uh, or war movies that were made on the uh, the opposing side. I think of the Kenosha set in uh, of another Eclipse series set, uh, wartime films made in Japan. You talked about the early Kurosawa films that were kind of birthed in that era as well. Um, and then, of course, Japan's reconstruction. As we, you know, as I kind of meander all over with some of my references here, but but Rossellini was very pivotal in kind of charting cinema's course forward after the war years and after all the disruption and drama of uh, you know the first half of the 1940s. Um, and then you know he he went in other directions as well. I, and the life of Saint Francis of Assisi also shows uh, the, the Little Flowers of Saint Francis is the is the name of that film. Uh, shows Rossellini's interest in taking on uh, religious subjects and revered figures of history, uh, but portraying them in a very naturalistic way, uh, not the kind of, uh, you know, biblical epics that you might think of with uh, Cecil B. DeMille and, and others like that, uh, who took some of those same almost mythical or legendary figures and kind of pumped them up for for cinematic spectacle Rossellini brings somebody who's as revered in Italy as as St. Francis of Assisi was and still is and he makes him a very accessible person even though there are you know events that could be seen in some sense as kind of miraculous or or marks of kind of supernatural uh, intervention or whatever he he's you know and he and he got into some trouble for that because he was portraying you know sacred topics and subjects in ways that at least uh, traditionally uh, would have seemed a little bit too comfortable or a little bit too familiar when you're supposed to kind of hold these characters up on a pedestal and, and revere them to a certain extent and you could say that this depiction of the life of Blaise Pascal does some of that same thing. Pascal, um, you know, Richard, you mentioned you know about him as more of like a scientist or from the math perspective. My introduction to Pascal was from his later religious writings. And that's part of my own sort of life story and, and communities that I've been associated with, grown up in, and a part of even to this day. Uh, I know Pascal through his work, Pensees, or the French word for thoughts, which was kind of an apologetic, a, a systematic defense of Christianity that he started to put together towards the end of his life, but never completed. Some sections are really nothing more than like a chapter heading 
or a topic that he wanted to address. Others are much more extended, and he gets into some pretty deep stuff with his uh, reflections on on spirituality and, and um, you know, becomes a very vigorous proponent of a particular style of Christianity that, uh, you know, maybe we'll get into some of the particulars as we go forward here. But I do have to ask, Richard, I mean, from my early, com- you know, impressions here, it seems like you, you enjoyed this movie, you got some good stuff out of it. Uh, but this is not a movie I'm going to be, you know, uh, up, up on my pedestal shouting to the world, go see this right now, drop everything else and check out uh, Rosaline's history films. Uh, but yeah, give me just some of your, your first impressions or what, what you thought about the uh, his choices and how he, how he decided to tell this story. I like the film a lot. Um, I, I think I, and I would give the huge proviso that part of that is because I know the subject matter very well. And I'm very impressed with the way he conveyed you know, some substantial topics in, for example, the scene where he has the exchange with Descartes. Yeah. Yeah. That is accurate. And I was, really tickled by that <laughs> yeah yeah getting into the the differences in their philosophical worldviews and and uh you know the counter arguments yeah t- yeah that, that was great yeah I, i'm i'm very used to seeing films depicting things like this where accuracy and content get sacrificed for drama and mm-hmm relatable story and that's certainly not what he's doing here <laughs> yeah um I wonder how effective it really is because when I was reading some of the links today that you sent yeah. and I was mm-hmm. not- noticing that almost every review misunderstood the exchange between him and Descartes. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to get right into that particular scene? I mean, it comes kind of in the second half of the movie and I don't mind. I don't, you know, we don't have to go in this strictly linear way, but since that kind of grabbed your attention, why don't you sum it up and just kind of give us a, a lead into this exchange and and by the way yeah there's another movie that uh rossellini made yeah. called cartesius which uh is interesting but go ahead and just kind of give us your little you know summary of, of that of that scene one of my interests in pascal is that he's a very interesting figure in philosophy in this period and it's kind of captured in that exchange with descartes um mm-hmm. the descartes does a good job of mapping out you know sort of the the, his program in meditations mm-hmm. which is he's really disturbed about all of the things that not just he got wrong but that people are getting wrong right this is sort of in the context of the renaissance where there's a huge rebirth in learning and science and you know not taking orthodoxy as the way to discover truth right it's not strictly on the authority of the um you know, the powerful institutions or the traditions that have been established in the preceding centuries, but let's just kind of get down to basics. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And Descartes is sort of one half of what you would say is the, the opposing sides in this period in that Descartes are rationalist and Descartes in a nutshell is saying, I'm going to stick with the only things that I know are right. And the only things that I know are right is that I exist and have thoughts. Mm Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to try to rebuild knowledge based on that as a, as a, as a foundation, right? which is a very tough thing to do. And Descartes largely gets the world back by finding a way to get God back into the equation through reasoning alone. 
and once he has God, he gets the whole world back. Because why would God be fooling us about the world? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's yeah, sort of yeah. Mm-hmm. that's sort of one half of the of the side, the continental Europe side, which is relying on human reason. Not in this film, but on the other side, like of the debate in England, you'd have I think John Locke would be the contemporary in this point. Mm-hmm. Who's an empiricist who thinks that what we know is our senses does right. not take Descartes' dream argument that we can't trust our senses very seriously. And that's a philosophy they're basically based on. We start with what we can see and touch and feel, and through that plus human reason, we rebuild up the world. Uh, you know, I guess what what you're kind of initially aware of, like you say, through your senses, uh, you trust what you see, what you feel, what you hear. Uh, Descartes, you know, one of his famous arguments is what if everything is just the, you know, manipulative work of a, of an evil demon that's convincing us that what we think and see and feel is real, you know? And yeah, so, so these are the, you know, the kind of two poles. And then where do you see, um, Pascal's response to Descartes kind of, you know, is that, is it balancing things out or is it just depicting a a different point of view? Yeah, it's. I find Pascal fascinating because it's, you know, the long story short, neither side of this debate really gets what they want. Oh yeah. It's never resolved. It's always yeah, like they, back and forth. Right. They large, well, and they also largely their arguments to get the world back never really work and they never quite get the world back. You're kind of either lost in thought or sensation without getting everything that we assume that we know about the world. It, Pascal has a sort of compromise position that's typical of people a couple hundred years later, like looking at this, where what he's really saying to him is, no, we know a lot of things, right? (laughs) We know that we know that space and time exists, right? And we know that things cause other things to happen. And we don't know this because we've reasoned it, right? Right. There's there's an intuitive grasp. There's a perception of something. It's not thoughts that have been logically built one upon the other to finally lead to this provable conclusion. Right. And he is largely a proponent of that. We know this and we have to have faith that this is the way it is. Right. Mm -hmm. He's one Mm -hmm. of the first proponents of faith is a real way of gaining knowledge not a not a gamble that i hope i'm right it's no i'm gaining knowledge this way like mm-hmm. this this is a this is another way of gaining knowledge and a lot of my knowledge of how the world works is through this so that's essentially what he's saying to descartes in that scene and i like descartes uh I'll have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Descartes comes out a little bit on the short end here. Maybe yeah. if the if the movie, and I, I don't think Pascal makes an, an appearance in Cartesius. Uh, check me if I'm wrong on that. But it's been a while. But but and, and I, I don't know that that particular encounter actually ever took place. I, I read somewhere. Apparently not. Apparently not. It's a bit of a fictional ruse. But you know, which is kind of the exception because again, even though. Uh, there are probably details th- that are compressed or, you know, simplified in the telling of a cinematic story. Um, Rossellini really did seem to hit a lot of the key highlights of Pascal's life. In fact, you can read the Wikipedia article on Pascal and you can almost go right down the sequence there and find all of the key scenes in the film. 
uh, are referred to in that article and then and a few other links that I've put in there. So I have put in some historic reference materials if you really want to read up on the real Blaise Pascal. Uh, he, he really was a very uh, unique individual. I, I'm not necessarily going to say he's a, an aspirational figure, though. He led a, led a very kind of a warped um, existence. So let me give you the quick bio. And again, this is this is derived as much from the film and, and how it tells the story as well as my own reading. But uh, he was born to a, an upper class uh, French family. Uh, the father in particular had connections to the throne and was in the opening scene of the film is the arrival of Father Etienne uh, and uh, Blaise and his two sisters, uh, Gilbert, uh, and oh, what's the other one's name? The younger one, Jacqueline. Um, they all arrive in this very, you know, nicely appointed house, although it's pretty austere uh, and a very, very kind of cold, blockish building. But he's there to take on the king's business as a tax collector. Um, Blaise, who has this uh, prodigious gift of mathematics, is enlisted by his father to help uh, clean up the mess left by his predecessor. All the accounts are astray and and just you know in need of cleanup. And Blaise, who has this uh, uh, incredible ability to calculate numbers in his head, uh, proves to be very valuable in his father's task. Uh, as a teenager, he becomes aware of a uh, of a treatise that's been put forth. Um, about uh, columns and planes, and, and it's just kind of a geometric type of exercise. But he ends up writing uh, an article or a, a theorem that actually has, has stood to this day. Uh, and maybe, Richard, you, you you know more about the mathematics than I do, so you, maybe you can uh, touch on some of that. But we, we basically follow the course of Pascal's life from his late teens up until his death at the age of 39, uh, where he's gone through a number of uh, situations and events that made him a notable public figure, uh, but also some of the uh, the hardships that he experienced because he was perpetually in, in terrible health. Uh, he never married, uh, never you know gave, had children, and seemed extremely dependent on his family. Um, uh, he had a period of time where he did socialize a little bit, but seemed like a very withdrawn. Uh, highly introverted, cerebral type of person who uh, later on in life became a proponent of a very rigorous and really kind of dogmatic style of Christianity, which I, I kind of felt, kind of going back to that Descartes scene, where uh, Pascal was, in a sense, uh, defending a more traditional approach to faith by uh, the acceptance of an external authority and recognizing that um, human reason and our ability to figure things out based on logical premises is always to a certain extent going to be doomed to failure. Uh, the absolute confidence that Descartes had in human reason, uh, Pascal, who was you know pretty brilliant himself and had a you know obviously remarkable gift for figuring things out, recognized that there were always going to be limits. There's always going to be uh, some aspect that we will never quite be able to grasp uh, intellectually. And I think there's also the sense of, of human character, you know, the deceitfulness and the hypocrisy and the uh, self-serving and the ability to play word games to justify almost any type of uh, improper behavior or, um, you know, self-indulgent tendency, whatever that might be. And so I think from both a, uh, a desire to maintain and, and preserve 
the trusted authority of of scripture in, in particular rather than the institutional church and also um, recognizing that if we build our citadel on just purely reason uh, that's a that's a shaky foundation that's going to ultimately fail us at some point uh, that seemed to be the, the the strength of pascal's approach um, in in his exchange with uh, descartes and and pascal also was a was a man of his age you know, they don't really reference montaigne or voltaire but those were kind of the two other big names in, in the french uh, philosophical scene of that time I think Voltaire's a little bit after. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, were they contemporaries at all, or was Voltaire completely after Pascal? Then? I think Voltaire would have been a child when. Oh, Pascal okay, died. okay. So, okay. Well, then, yeah, maybe I'm I'm thinking of maybe more the traditions that have followed up on them. But, anyways, yeah. So this film uh, also takes a very um, thorough approach to recreating the elements and the atmosphere of Pascal's world. What would you just think about how the story was told and and uh, how how viewers are invited to approach it i'm yeah i'm i i wonder that's what i'll start my comments yeah. by saying that because i know that rossellini has been has said uh, i mean i'll take one step back and say i guess my first question is why isn't it a documentary mm-hmm. right because you think that the most standard way if i want to teach people about pascal is to make this sort of documentary a little bit more documentary like so i can explain things to people yeah so i wonder I, i'm wondering while watching it what he really wants to come what he wants to get across because i know he said that people under come to understand things in a different way when they see it dramatized right like you can read about pascal right but when you see it like portrayed this way you get a more emotional understanding of of the subject matter, which I don't disagree with, but I'm, I'm kind of curious what he thinks he's trying to convey because I don't for, know that, that how, what people are supposed to get out of the first half of this. I have a better idea what they're supposed to get out of the second half. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, uh, I, I think he does a very good job of portraying some of the, you know, some of the, the feeling behind Pascal's religious conversion and his eventual religious conversion is more of an emotional than an intellectual thing for mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I kind of wonder what, like, what is an audience supposed to get out of the stuff about science and philosophy if they don't know anything about it? <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 to me, it feels like the first half, um, as you raise that question, is really about showing the emergence of what you might call modernity within this um this is kind of late renaissance era and and if you look at the series the eclipse films the three that are in there starting with the age of the medici which is the oldest in time it was was the last to be made i think i think they're almost like in reverse order here maybe cartesius came after the age of medici um but they put Pascal at the end of this sequence because they're kind of telling the story of Renaissance into early Enlightenment era, I guess you could say. But this is the first of those th- those three films to be made. And so if you watch them in the order selected by the box, you're not going to be watching them in the same order that Rossellini introduced them. But yeah, these were films that were made for television. And I think this was uh, two like one-hour episodes that were on consecutive nights. So to me, I feel like the 
you know the the emphasis on things like um, barometric pressure and the the, the first calculator. Th- those scenes are juxtaposed with like the witch trial and the uh, the medicine when when Etienne the father falls and breaks his leg. <laughs> we see these peasants that are sitting there chewing on leaves and spitting them into a bowl, and they make it this kind of compote it's kind of this green slimy crud that they put on his leg and then wrap it up in kind of a kind of a, an exterior bandage they actually even put like branches with leaves right on them right on the right on the leg so you see very primitive by our standards medicine but you see the emergence of these new ways of looking at things and so yeah to me that's that's kind of the the fascination is you sort of see yeah. modernity creeping out of its uh, out of its shell, yeah. and his confrontation with the man who wants him to get his barometers out of the out of the church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, or or and, and even like the the uh, nature abhors a vacuum. The idea yeah. that yeah. this what we think of as a pretty pretty neutral, pretty secular principle. I mean, there's no there's you know there's nothing that that is. Uh, you know, advocating for, uh, you know, atheism or skepticism or rejection of church authority by saying when you pull back on a syringe, you've got a gap of, of, uh, of, of kind of emptiness there. And, and, uh, and yet, because this is challenging Aristotelian uh, philosophy yeah. and, and the t- traditions of, of Aquinas and others that built off of that, that in itself is an affront to uh, morality even. Yes. And I'd say, not without reason. I mean, one of the things about the sort of orthodoxy that they're challenging is it's a it's a big structure, and if you pull parts of it out, the whole thing starts to fall apart, which is what happened. Right, right. right. You see, the the you reformation would, is already going yeah. on, and what you would think that agreeing that there is obviously a vacuum in this tube because I sucked the air out of it <laughs> is right. a is a reasonable proposition, but. It, if you agree that there can be a vacuum in there, you have to agree that not everything in the world is a substance. Right. Or spirit. Those are the two things that exist. Right. Right. Yeah. When you, when you start to agree that, well, maybe there's something that isn't a substance or a spirit, then you have to, then the bricks start coming out of the the building. And, and also the acknowledgement that all of these authorities have been, fundamentally mistaken i mean yes the credibility uh, it's not just the technical pieces of an argument but it's the people who have been proponents of that and who have indeed put people to death for questioning some of those teachings and and we see that here with with the witch trial here uh where uh this servant woman um she's just basically a peasant woman who's been working for a a tanner you know a person who makes hides into leather and uh, something has happened. One of his children has fallen ill. And as was often the case, um, this woman was accused of being a witch. You know, she put a curse on this child. And, um, you know, and because the man's business now has suffered, you know, he's he cannot sell his goods because nobody wants to buy, you know, hexed products. And, and so he goes to Etienne, uh, the senior Pascal, and says, uh, sir, I cannot pay my taxes because my business is in ruins, uh, but there is something that you might be able to help me out with. If this woman, uh, who's kind of caught up in the clogged court system of, of all the witch trials that are going on at this time, if we could expedite her case and bring her up 
and we could be done with this problem, uh, then I can probably, you know, pick up my business and pay the back taxes and all will be well. And even though, you know, it, it's, it's not too hard to pick up on, but it's never really stated in obvious terms. This woman is basically sacrificed for the sake of returning to business as usual. Uh, she's tortured, and after unbearable suffering that's been inflicted upon her, she finally gives the confession that tells them exactly what they want to hear. You know, the, the devil transported her to the to the mountains and the forest, and I mean, it's really just quite an exchange. And whether or not this is a verbatim text, you know, from an actual witch trial, you know, there's enough historical uh, evidence out there to say these are the types of interrogations that took place. And I don't know, what did you just think about that whole scene? To me, it was was pretty pretty disturbing. And just, you know, again, um, this the sadness to think that that was the real experience that so many uh, women in particular had to endure and just how helpless they are because the gears of this system just demanded that somebody had to pay the price. First of all, I really wish I could claim that I can't pay my taxes because my house is cursed. <laughs> it's that lady down the street. She gave me the evil eye, you know, right off my you bill. Gotta, or give me a year. You got to sort this out first. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two things I thought were really remarkable in that sequence. I mean, one in the sort of a high level, she seems to be- believe what she's saying now. Yeah, was was that under duress? Is it because she's internalized all of this condemnation? Uh, maybe she really was dabbling in some kind of, you know, pagan whether whether for its arts, uh, herbal remedies. You know, certainly there's a there's a whole other side to this argument about how the church persecuted uh, a lot of uh, people who just basically practiced the older ways and kept some of these pre-Christian traditions alive in different ways. Maybe they did that knowing that they were in active rebellion of some sort against the uh, ecclesiastical authorities. You know, I, I, you know I, I have to imagine that there's a lot more complexity in this issue than just, you know, these poor women that are being charged for no good reason, although I can certainly not support in any way the kind of torments that were inflicted upon them uh yeah in the in the in in the name of christ and under church authority it's just it's just a a really gripping sequence because you're right she has basically been you know i would say brainwashed or or convinced that the almost pleading to be burned at the stake is like her last best hope her life has been made so hellish and her suffering is so intense that being lashed to a stake and set on fire is is the best way out that she can imagine at this point. What a what a horrific thought. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm what I'm starting to see too, and is I think there's at least three sequences in the first half where he presents things that are kind of a mockery of reasoning. Yeah, and this trial. It's all set up as if this is a trial. Yeah, right. With all the all the pomp and all of the yeah. the robes and everything else. Yeah. But I was struck by the prosecutor, like at one point, getting her to tell this story and asking her, how did Satan get into your room? He came in under the door. Are you sure he didn't come in through the window? Didn't you leave the window open? Right. Well, the window was open, but he came in under the door. I really think he came in through the window. And I sit here <laughs> like, yeah. what? What are you? T- what does this matter? <laughs> well, there's, there's probably some other type of narrative that he's trying yeah. to establish. I mean, you think about 
even in, in our own political debates nowadays where you know if you represent a cause well you're you're a secret communist or you're you're, you're really advancing fascist goals or whatever the case may be because it's not just that you're not conforming you're doing something that is advancing the larger cause of who we've identified to be the enemy and and therefore even your crimes have to be put in a certain frame and so your confession has to fit that format i mean it's just it's it's all very twisted and and um and yet sort of as i was just saying you see what's kind of these ancient examples of, of situations that are not entirely distant or removed from what we're going through in our own context. And I think, yeah. Yes. His encounter with the Jesuit about air pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was surprised he kept his cool on that. Yes. Yeah. The guy gives him a completely a priori argument about why what he's seeing is wrong. <laughs> right, right, because it, 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 the rarefied air seeping yeah. in through the pores and the glass and the you know the ether or whatever you know, because these are the explanations that have to be presupposed to to keep that house of cards that you kind of referred to earlier together. Uh, yeah, these are the, the these are the the gaps in our argument. So this is the this is the solution that we are imagining would would cover those gaps. Yeah, it's like I'm sure what's happening is this. Would, would you like to come and look at it? Like, yeah. no, I'm sure that that's what's happening. I, I'm sure this is what you're seeing. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, and so and so you see, they, uh, you see Pascal here. Uh, he's an advocate for the advance of knowledge. Uh, he he's basically marking the idea of progress that we build on the accomplishments of the ancients. And then we also point out where they were wrong because now we have access to new information. Just that concept in itself is kind of a new thing at this time because yeah. up until then, we had the texts of Plato and Aristotle and all the other classical masters. And those were sort of like Moses and the tablets of the law. They were delivered from on high and shall be authoritative and unquestioned for the rest of time. And you had, you know, the, the whole Dark Ages was kind of uh, the living out of that mentality that, you know, there's these are the texts, here's the official interpretation of the texts, and here's how you are supposed to live in the social hierarchy based on whatever circumstances you were born into. If you're a part of the nobility, your descendants will always be the nobility. If you're the working class or the merchants or the nobleman, this is, you know, this is where your destiny lies. And the the church and, and even the, the, the governments, uh, the, the divinely appointed kings and such, uh, were, were guardians of an order that should not and could not really be challenged. And any challenges against that were met by punishment and persecution so that, you know, the, the order maintained itself as long as it could. Uh, but here's uh, Pascal, uh, you know, by all means, a pious man. Uh, he, he was not out to undermine uh, the authority of the church. He remained a, a Catholic his whole life, although this Jansenist sect that I think kind of aligns with some of the more rigorous uh, Calvinism and, you know, kind of that style of Protestant Christianity. I think Jansenism and Calvinism kind of overlap and they kind of have some common cultural roots uh, coming out of uh, Holland and, and, and uh, Northern France. That's where 
you could see that Pascal was a you know a threat of sorts to the church authorities, and that's kind of where we go in the second half of the of the film. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of really talking myself into this film now. Like, I mean, I, I liked it, but I was sort of wondering about the point of it. But now yeah. I sort of think I know the point of it. I mean, it's worth noting that you know one of the huge sort of the huge innovation in the in the Renaissance is largely a series of movements towards just start looking at things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's not only in sort of the area of science, but a lot of the, the changes in religion have to do with, you don't have to just listen to religious authorities. You can Mm -hmm. read the books and think for yourself. And in many ways, this sort of, the sort of sectes in is an expression of that, like, especially you know his other big work the letters in defensive yeah of the uh, you know his attack on the jesuits is largely very reminiscent of luther's eventual mm-hmm. like eventual attacks where you know your method of of justifying this stuff is just is leading to corruption <laughs> yeah what the word casistry is that it yeah uh, yeah where yeah. it's kind of like you're coming up with elaborate verbal defenses to excuse what otherwise looks like hypocrisy or uh, contradiction in in between what you say and what you do uh or or you're actually justifying immorality and of course we see so much of that in our politics yeah. these days uh yeah go ahead much of it was justifying letting people who had money not have to do the same sort of attrition for yeah for confessed sins right mm-hmm. that was one of his big accusations against them that they were using this elaborate sort of let's look at a case example and see how similar this is to argue that people who who had the ability to pay their way out of a sin were fine. Yeah. And again, you're getting back into tradition, you know, defending the traditional social order. Uh, these are, these people cannot get in trouble. They cannot be uh, scandalized because they have important responsibilities to uphold or because they are of just a class where we, you know, we should we shouldn't weigh them down with the petty consequences that uh, we inflict on on the common folks. Uh, but you can't come out and say it that blunt, bluntly. So you've got to <laughs> come up with all these kind of fancy loopholes that uh, you know that the privileged are able to exploit. Um, yeah. So again, this movie and I think these films in general all have a lot of content, you know, depending on how engaged you want to get with the material or how familiar you are with the historical backdrop. Um, you know, they, they can, they can serve as kind of a a quick overview or summary. If you're just looking to kind of create, uh, maybe fill in some holes in cultural literacy, but yeah. And as I say, I've been watching and thinking about these movies off and on for the past 10 years or so. I did an episode of the eclipse viewer with my friend Trevor Barrett, where we kind of talked about all three of the films and even that conversation, we didn't really break it down film by film. We just talked about the set as a whole and Rossellini's approach. So there's a link. If you want to kind of catch up on that conversation, that kind of takes a look at these three films almost as a phenomenon of a certain style of, of filmmaking, uh, which I have to say didn't seem to be all that influential. <laughs> no. I, I don't really think there's anybody who's out there. There's, there are certainly many documentaries, and I'm sure there's probably some really good ones that have been made about Pascal and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and, and many of these other characters. But this idea of, of trying to recreate these scenes with this historical verisimilitude um, 
with and also the sort of some of the carryovers of neorealism in terms of uh, amateur actors or at least not famous actors uh, people who are cast maybe more for a certain look than for line delivery um yeah, your your comment, Richard, that you're talking yourself into it. I think that's actually a, a common experience for people who've come to appreciate these because, on first glance, I'll say I, I think they're pretty off-putting in some ways because they just mm-hmm. they don't they don't cast an appeal to the average viewer. You, you have to kind of adjust your own perceptions to fit its wavelength rather than them trying to win you over. Yeah, it, it's certainly true that I mean, you in a sense need to already be interested in Pascal or that era to get much out of the film. I I think if somebody were trying to sell you (laughs) on Pascal, there'd be a lot more melodrama in this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and making him a more of a sympathetic type of figure. I mean, because I don't think he comes across as particularly likable or admirable. I mean, what do you think? Well, I I like him, but I, I, but I, he, he's not a sparkling personality. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, Rossellini himself, I think the quote is, he was a very boring man who never even made love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and so you get a sense of this kind of, I think I used the word warped earlier. I mean, he's obviously incredibly gifted. He's got an intellect and a, and a desire to pursue knowledge. And that's, that's also clearly you know on display in the early parts of the film where he's staying up all night doing his calculations and working through a problem to the detriment to to his own health and uh, you might even consider that sort of some foreshadowing that he's going to sort of exhaust himself and work himself into an early grave because of this relentless pursuit of knowledge and then eventually that transforms into a a pursuit of divinity and and of uh, mortification in fact he apparently engaged in some pretty disturbing types of practices, including, you know, chastity belts and other types of mortification of the flesh type of exercises. So uh, he he may have had some pretty deep hangups about sexuality, about his physicality. As he pursued this spiritual path, one almost gets the sense that he just kind of lost his will to live. And And if his health issues had been as intense and they certainly seem to have been persistent throughout his entire life i can certainly understand uh anybody's going to get weary of that just say it ain't worth it after a while you know um but but to have all of these amazing accomplishments attributable to this guy that the calculating machine the scientific breakthroughs the uh the, the public work, transport public system. transportation system right <laughs> uh he apparently invented or at least uh, had a very significant role in the early development of the roulette wheel <laughs> okay so i mean even gambling yeah. you know and, yeah, and uh, probability theory which uh yeah he's, is, a, he's is, a founding kind of member in that right in that discipline so so yeah so and so and of course you know we have to mention pascal's wager which makes an appearance here uh which is the idea that if we cannot ever ultimately know for certainty whether or not God exists, it makes better sense to live and force yourself to believe that he does, because if that turns out to be the truth, you win it all. Uh, Whereas if you are wrong in your bet that God does not exist and that nothing we do makes a difference, and it turns out that God does exist, well, you know, 
you've come out on the losing on there. So to him, you know, Pascal's wager is that faith, belief, trust in God is a better bet given the stakes that are at play here. So for what that's worth. Um, but it is a, it is a, it's a, it's an argument uh, for faith and belief that is continually uh, raised today in, in various circles, whether they're Catholic or not. And I think that principle sort of lies at the heart of any kind of uh, proselytizing type of religion. They get the, the recruit, the person who's being, you know, pressed to believe to say, you know, everything depends on this and, and you better go along with it. Because if you don't, now that you know the truth and you turn your back on it, it's going to be all that much worse. So, yeah. My, uh, I'll offer something that's a slight defense of it. Sure. I don't think it's a very, I don't think it's a very good argument, Yeah, yeah. but it's worth noting it's in Ponce's, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't think he rigorously worked this one out. Right. Well, and I think you can say that when he was putting that together, and and Ponce, it's again kind of alluded to in this film, these were literally pieces of paper with a hole punched in the corner and tied together with with bits of twine. So it's, yeah, and and he died while he was putting this together. So there's lots and lots of scholarly dispute over what's the correct order, which of these were his finished arguments versus drafts. There may have been portions that he wrote up that are more paraphrasing people that he disagreed with, you know? So you have to really yeah. cross-reference what he wrote with other writings to say, what is it that he's actually arguing for here? So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think he ever really intended it to be offered as a rigorous argument. And I think a lot of the pe- replies to it that consider it as such are, are not thinking about it very heavily. <laughs> well, and I think the the power of of those writings, and I've been actually listening to the audio book, and of course I'm listening to them in translation, um, parts of them give a very compelling, very powerful sort of indictment of human vanity and foolishness and uh, you know all of the things about human character that I think are <laughs> uh, rightly deserving of, of criticism and pointing out. Uh, you know, I... Uh, I am a practicing Christian. I'm not a fundamentalist, but I I do feel like there's a portion of this teaching that that speaks very powerfully to me, uh, even though I also have a lot of dismay over what I see happening in the broader expression of Christianity in so many other parts of the world. So I won't get into too much of the complexities and all of that, but I also uh, find myself sometimes very impatient with the kind of... uh, you know, relentlessly affirming and endorsing and bolstering styles of spirituality that basically just, you want to, you know, whether it's you got this or prosperity theology or whatever, um, I feel just this play real soft soap in terms of how people actually live their lives, how they function, how we function. I certainly don't want to separate myself from humanity in that way. But I feel like um, there's something bracing and rigorous about certain parts of the pensées that are, are you know, very effective. Then there's others that where he's really basing so much of his claims on, I think, information that is now clearly historically inaccurate uh, and, and it is basically relying on just the force of dogma and the uh, and the traditional authority that uh, he he appeals to just in terms of a literalistic interpretation of scripture that I don't think is really sustainable now and so it's a mixed bag but it's still fascinating and I think but I think it's also the power of his writing and apparently 
Uh, he's one of the you know foremost uh, influencers of, of French prose style. Yeah, as as yeah. a writer. Yeah. So you know, just just uh, incredible uh, level of brilliance and achievement for a man who in some ways, like I say, lived a very sheltered life and did not live a very long one and, and really didn't publish a whole lot under his own name. I think his scientific stuff was actually the, the stuff that was published in his lifetime. All these other things kind of came up later on. I, the provincial letters, those were, those were published in his lifetime, right? They were, but under a pseudonym. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because, because of it the controversy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, the more, as we've been talking and I've been thinking about this film and I was wondering what I thought the point was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I have an idea what the, the point is. And I think it sort of does trace back to Rossellini a bit and I'm very sympathetic to it. I think maybe if you put the two halves together, you realize you're getting a portrait of a man who's, a, who's like an important figure in sort of enlightenment in the rejection of orthodoxy mm-hmm. and movement towards science and let's look at the world and let's discover these things. But it's not really enough. Yeah. You know, it's not enough to be that man, right? Like he's, it's not necessarily satisfying and he has to, he has to sort out the part of his life that isn't based on reason. And I think that's very much what Rossellini himself is sort of saying. Right. In this, this, by the, by shifting to this, that, you know, there's like a, there's a gap in the way we're using media and the world, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, we're not teaching people things. We're just trying to entertain and satisfy material needs. And he's trying to do something a little bit higher. And yeah. I'm very sympathetic with that. Yeah. I'll, I'll say mm-hmm. a bit like Rossellini. I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. Right. I'm not, and I, I am an atheist, but I find mm-hmm. most atheists kind of annoying for their refusal to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> refusal to acknowledge that there are things in the world that are not based on reason. Yeah, you're right. That, that at some point, you have to be making a, a a judgment that's more of a faith based one. Yeah, you, you, we're all taking those leaps because we all have those gaps in our arguments, our conceptualizations of how this world works or what my place is in it, then we, we have to just kind of putty over those pieces that don't fit over, you know, fit together quite right. Uh, but I, I, I think you're very much on spot on with what Rossellini was trying to accomplish there. And I think he, he says as much in, in various interviews that he gave throughout the 60s uh, after he had sort of formally renounced. I mean, he was one of those guys who said cinema is dead. You know, uh, Brent, uh, Godard's done the same thing. And I think there are directors who, when they get to their personal kind of limit, they make these <laughs> overarching assumptions and statements. Uh, but again, let's face it, Rossellini and Godard were both kind of revered as demigods within cinema in their own circles. So I guess they felt entitled to make those blanket statements. But he was trying to uh, create uh, a popular version of of entertainment. Uh, and these, again, were made for TV. Apparently, they got a lot of viewers. I think his prestige generated a pretty huge audience in, in Europe at the time that these films debuted. But, you know, they they didn't spark a lot of imitators or copycats. And I think he just had uh, this very elevated cultural outlook. He, he himself is kind of one of those great men of history, <laughs> just like yeah. the people he's depicting here, who uh, has a lots of flaws, a lot of, you know, complexities in his own personality. Uh, he aspires to the good things, but he also knows that he's, you know, he's made some pretty big errors and, and should not be uh, 
held in higher esteem than perhaps he deserves. And I think uh, a name like Pascal, Rene Descartes, these were towering figures with huge influences, and yet they were, after all, human beings. They were just people who were born in certain places and times. And uh, in, in Pascal's case, he, you know, he went through some hardship. He lost his mother at a very young age. He had bad health for, you know, the, the, the full extent of his life. His father died. His mother or his, his sister went off to a convent. Uh, he was left very much alone. And I think the emotional appeal of, of this strict ascetic style of Christianity also points out that there was a need that it was satisfying that we we maybe can never know on a real deep personal level but there is an attraction to that type of outlook on life that kind of um, what you might even call judgmental or disdaining theology that views humanity as hopelessly foolish deluded uh, self-gratifying vain all of that you may identify those characteristics within yourself, but there's also just this uh, reassurance of of just how messed up everybody else is. Uh, it can lend itself to a form of elitism or condescension. And um, he he himself had the kind of brilliant gifts and, and insights and abilities that could make it maybe not defensible, but understandable why he would look upon his fellow humans as something you know less than <laughs> and yeah. i don't know it, it's 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 very it's it gets very subjective and i don't want to you know slander the guy's reputation or or motives at all i just don't know him but i have from my own experience i guess i'm, I'm letting some of that bleed into my thoughts here <laughs> all right so uh, any other thoughts i mean i i you know i know you you have a math uh, a background in math and, and science uh, philosophy Tell me just a little bit more about, you know, your previous awareness of Pascal and, and some of the things that he did and, and kind of how this movie might have shaped or altered your perception of who you thought Pascal was. Like, it, it's true. I I have multiple, like, degrees in philosophy, but I sort of ab abandoned it out of uh, there not being anything that I wanted to do for a living with these days. Yeah, okay. Right. I, I don't much like... It's wrong. I was going to say I don't like teaching. That's not true. I can't stand in front of a room and talk all day. Yeah, it's like not something I can psychologically do. You come on my and, podcast and you give your <laughs> pronouncements yeah, yeah. of the world, right? Well, right. well, it's sort of the thing yeah. I'd say. I like talking philosophy with sure. People, yeah, me too. But, but mm -hmm. you're not going to, Eric. No one's paying you to sit in a room and talk to people about philosophy, right? <laughs> well, and the whole the whole academic thing, you know, yeah. it is a it is a kind of performance art and publication and all of that, you know. And uh, yeah, after a while, I mean, I, I have acquaintances who have worked at that level of academics and philosophy, written books and all of that. And, you know, it's it's a racket like anything else when it gets yeah. down to it. Yeah. But when I did it, my, my leanings towards um, philosophy of mathematics and mm -hmm. artificial intelligence and stuff like that. Yeah. Which is why, yeah. I'm in, why I'm in IT now. Right. But uh, so I knew Pascal from the work on conic sections that they speak of early in that mm -hmm. he's got, uh, there's a Pascal's theorem and I knew Pascal's wager, which is often like if anybody, if you discuss, even at the lowest level of philosophy, the you know, intro courses, arguments for the existence of God, Pascal's wager will get yeah. dropped in there. 
It's a very um, accessible idea that you don't have to be really theologically sophisticated to get it, you know, or or real articulate in all the type of, you know, conversations. It, it has kind of a gut level appeal, and yet, you know, it it can have a, it can sound a little bit on the lofty side as well if you want to sort of take it like that. I'd say later on, and I've given some hints of it, like when things are said here, I, I became very persuaded by the kinds of philosophy that Pascal offers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not literally his views, but I'm very persuaded by the sort of middle, middle range views that say some of it's just faith. You know? uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> like, like you have to understand that whatever worldview you have, a, a lot of it is an assumption that right. you have yeah. no argument for. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's, it's not just a, not as in a sort of nihilistic way, but as a, that's okay way. Well, know? cause we're that's all in it together. Right. Yeah. Right. No, nobody is exempt from that. Nobody can yes. say, well, I'm the person who's, you know, only dealing with the facts. <laughs> yes. Uh, although there are, uh, as I'm sure you, you know, we're we're all aware of, uh, there are many on all sides of these debates who yes. will have that claim to have that upper hand or that conclusive final statement argument that that wins the day. So I, I found him to be an interesting figure for that reason. Yeah. I mean, I think he's uh, somebody who came across this view, the, the, a view like this, about a couple of hundred years before it starts to become common. It's normally a sort of Kant starts to be the first person who starts poking at that kind of review. So yeah. it's very, I find very interesting that he was there, mm. but he's not a very rigorous philosopher. No, he's a very rigorous mathematician and, and, uh, and scientist, but his philosophy is a little bit chucked out in fragments while he was writing about other things. So it's very difficult to kind of piece yeah. his views together. Yeah. And I think, I think you could even say that he went through a, you know, a phase of life where that work was, was really primary. And then he moved on to other things because his, his health and his kind of emotional state, the loss of his family, uh, it did seem like, you know, especially the way his, his death scene, which is the final scene in this film was portrayed as that, he was just kind of giving up, you know, his doctors were assuring him, you're, you're just sick, but you'll get over it. So, you know, I need the viaticum. I need to have my last rites read. And and they did that for him to indulge him. And that was his permission to just check out. It's not exactly suicide, but it certainly is in almost a literal sense, giving up the ghost. You know, he, he had just had it. <laughs> and uh, it, it's a, it's quite a, I don't know, to me still very, one of the most moving death scenes in all of cinema. Um, yeah, I agree. It's 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 really wonderfully staged. Yeah. It's, it's, uh... What do you think about the music? I know you've got a pretty eclectic take, taste in music, and this is a very interesting uh, early electronic ambient soundtrack. Uh, any comments on that? No, you know, I didn't notice it while I was watching it. <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, yeah. and, and again, this is a film that I think is, is definitely worth re- revisiting. But do, yeah, turn up the volume a little bit and just check it out. Sure. It, it, I, I In my original review from 2012, I said it wouldn't be out of place in like Aphex Twins Selected Ambient Works, oh, Volume 2. Yeah, it's got this kind of just pulsating electronic sort of throb going on. Um, not really percussive or anything like that. And like I say, very easy to miss, but once you're kind of tuned into it, that, that 
electronic soundscape kind of comes up at, at pivotal times where there's something kind of significant going on, some kind of change or transition is in the air, whether that's uh, in Pascal's personal life or in some kind of breakthrough that is maybe going to impact the larger world. So it's an interesting package, uh, two hours of film that is probably maybe best uh, consumed alone or with a, a with a good friend who maybe shares your interest in these types of heavier topics. This is not a throw it on and entertain your friends type of movie, but uh, hopefully, listeners, you've enjoyed checking out our conversation. Uh, Richard, you got any final comments before we wrap things up for today? Isabella Rossellini designed the costumes. Did she? I didn't yes, notice that. Yes, okay. the credits. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know that the son of Vittorio De Sica is also, he's he's in the cast somewhere, I believe, or maybe um, on the crew. So, yeah, it was just fascinating piece of work. Um, I do recommend these films uh, with all the caveats that have already been kind of thrown out there to anybody who maybe just follows along and listens to my show without necessarily watching the movies. I, I do hope you check this out. Like I say, it's a pretty decent quality stream on the Criterion channel. Of course, these are made-for-TV films, so I don't think you'll ever need to have them on Blu-ray. They probably weren't filmed in the highest resolution anyways. But, you know, it's a, it's a good set if you want to dig into some history and get a little bit more insight into how the world we're living in got that way. <laughs> All right. Well, the next one, I know, Richard, you're going to be part of this conversation as well. We're going to go back to uh, 1972 and talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy, which is a fantastic (laughs) opportunity to talk about Hitchcock. You know, that film came up on the Criterion channel for their Hitchcock for the Holidays bundle, which has already come and gone. But I've got the Blu-ray and I'm uh, really eager to get a chance to talk about Alfred Hitchcock on this podcast. Uh, not too many opportunities left in my chronological scheme, but this is the next one, and uh, that should be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Well, okay, so thanks for listening in, everybody. Uh, we'll be at you with a new episode in the not-too-distant future, but uh, take care for now. Bye.